Welcome to Give and Take. It's a podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, activists, authors, theologians, philosophers, scholars, political pundits, and a host of others about their world, their work, and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a conversation that's free-flowing, entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, oftentimes enlightening and informative, and above all else, deeply human. For tuning in to this episode of Give and Take. My guest is Luke Conway. He's a professor of psychology at the University of Montana, where he also runs the Political Cognition Lab which is dedicated to producing the best political psychology research possible. Luke, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. It's great to have you on. You wrote something recently writing up on the heterodox blog which is one of my favorite uh kind of academic cultural conversation starting uh, conduits i mean this is jonathan Haidt and, and that crew they're really trying to get through the left right divide and, and and think about how we get back to discovering ideas and really being honest around data and life and existential kind of reality you wrote this thing why conservatives and liberals are not experiencing the same pandemic and you've done some so some research on this which i i would think is not easy to do in the midst of a you're researching a pandemic in the midst of a pandemic i mean isn't that hard how do you get interviews how do you do how do you do it well it's not it's actually not that difficult in the modern era because so much of our research is already online so there are websites where people volunteer for money to fill out surveys and questionnaires. And we just use one of the most common ones in our field, which is Mechanical Turk on Amazon. So it sounds more difficult um, than it actually is right now to collect that kind of data. It's what actually harder right Turk? now. I've, I've, I've never heard of that. What is it? Okay. Yeah. So Mechanical Turk is a, is a website portal run by Amazon. And basically there's workers on there who fill out surveys for money and we pay them a certain rate to fill out surveys um, for research purposes. You know, we go through the IRB, we have to get specific permission to use Mechanical Turk. <laughs> Obviously, we're not just going yeehaw and running studies, but so it goes through the normal channels and then we um, have an account on Mechanical Turk and we advertise our studies and people sign up to take them. That's increasingly how much do you, how much do you, how much do you make to do the study? Uh, so for this study, it was not very long. And I think it was about 50 cents, if I recall, which was sort of the going rate on MTurk for this particular kind of survey. But it varies. It's kind of a free market. So it, it varies and it, and it changes over time. It's kind of, you know, like a lot of free and open markets, it, it's hard to predict exactly. You know, you put a study out and you're clearly not paying enough and you just have to pay more for people to do it. So that's so where we get our, so that's where we get our, our our data right now, and there's multiple site prolific and other sites like that. Yep. Sorry. Go ahead. So you found that basically people largely are reacting to this on tribal kind of partisan lines in weird ways until they have experience with the virus, right? Like basically, mm -hmm. uh, you, you, you kind of chart like the people tribe up on this stuff until, and I guess this is mostly with conservatives. Conservatives tend to be more skeptical until they lose someone or are connected to someone with loss. And then the whole thing changes. Mm -hmm. Correct. It's like if you, 
the ideology matters a lot to people, but it seems to matter less when they're in danger, when their loved ones are threatened, when their health or well-being is threatened, and then suddenly ideolo- those pre-existing ideological concerns become a lot less important. So the ideological divide, in a sense, was reduced in our, our three studies at higher levels of experience with or impacts of the disease. So as people became more, um, as, as the disease was impacting them more, as they knew people who had it or they were feeling the impacts of it financially, for example, the ideological divide became less. Yeah, and I found this study, um, it was in US, U.S. News World Report the other day, that basically the finding was that the pandemic is actually growing faster in non-metro areas, in rural areas, than in, in metro mm-hmm. areas now, which blew me away. And I mm-hmm. I mean, I, I don't know if this, I, I was talking with a friend who is a conservative who's in a, a rural area, he's like, who's pretty scared by the pandemic. He's like, I just think people, the skepticism leads people to be less careful or something. And then, I, I don't know. I mean, how do you account for that? I mean, what do you think about that? Well, our, our data, I mean, this is going way beyond our data, okay? But speculating out from our data, yeah, you could suggest that conservatives view this disease as less threatening than liberals do. And if there are more conservatives in rural areas, which there are, then it may be an ideological phenomenon where they're simply less concerned about it and therefore more likely to to catch it or propagate it. That's a possibility. I'm not saying that's happening, but that is a possibility. So when you wrote this up, were you thinking, okay, gosh, I mean, because I think, you know, the thing that worries me, right, is that like, we are not going to have a vaccine in in 18 months, I would guess, right? Mumps is the best we've ever done. That's four years. So we're going to have to figure a way forward, right? And and we're going to have to balance the economic stuff, the vulnerable population stuff, and just saving the culture stuff. I mean, is that, is that kind of why you were going into this? Like, how can we get to a more rational, fr- how can we get to a framework where we can actually have the consent of the government? Because it seems like we're so far from that, right? Mm-hmm. That is part of my motive. Part of it is just the all solutions start in some sense with understanding the thing you're trying to solve. So I think for me, part of it is I'm just trying to figure out why there's this divide between liberals and conservatives in the way that they're viewing in the U.S. and the way that they're viewing this, you know, worldwide pandemic. For me, it starts with research in my own field. So there's this wide array of research, including some of our own, in in the field that I come from, which is social psychology. And that research suggests conservatives are more sensitive to threat in general. So they're, they're just generally more attuned to threat and danger. And they're especially attuned to disease threat, physical threats like disease. So I was just trying to understand why, given that that's the party line in my field, the conservatives ought to be especially sensitive to disease threat. Why in the world they don't seem to care about a worldwide pandemic as much as liberals? So that was kind of my starting point, was just to understand what was going on. And we, we sort of thought, well, there's two possibilities, roughly. Well, we investigated two possibilities. First, maybe the two groups are actually experiencing different levels of COVID. You know, maybe liberals on average are, are literally just more impacted by the disease than, than conservatives are. And so they're just responding to different realities. Maybe the, it, but the my friends, my friends, many friends I have in Brooklyn and Manhattan, they are traumatized. I mean, I, I just talked to friends who, um, their pub, they run a publicity firm. They actually just went to their summer house in Maine and got, you know, their parents out and they just evacuated. I mean, they're, we'll go back to New York someday, but like right now we're out. Like, so, I mean, that's, it, it's traumatizing. I mean, people like, I, I, I know people that like, I, one of my guests who is living in New York, um, she was yesterday's guest. Um, she said 
she had it, her husband had it, their kid had it. Um, you know, and, and, and he's a journalistic photographer. He's photographing stuff in morgues and subways, hmm. which is traumatizing. I mean, mm-hmm. right? Like, I mean, this is the kind of thing where it, it, we're if you're in a place that is not as impacted, you, it, it's just a thing. Mm-hmm. No, I, I totally agree with that. That was part of my original thinking about it. And I have colleagues and friends in New York also. And I that's been my experience talking with them. It's very, very traumatizing, very difficult, very serious um, horrible experiences, much along the lines that you just described. So I wonder if the original epicenter had been in Houston, let's say, instead of in New York, a more conservative region, I wonder if the roles would have been reversed and maybe we'd be have we'd have conservatives feeling more that the disease was more serious because they're just experiencing it more. So part of me wondered that. So that was one one explanation we were interested in. Secondly, we were interested in whether or not liberals and conservatives might view the disease as threatening, differentially threatening, because they're motivated to want different political outcomes. So the maybe the cart is pulling the horse, so to speak. So a COVID's perceived threat level might differentially be perceived to influence those outcomes. So possibly liberals, for example, are more motivated to, to view the disease as threatening because it serves their political ends. And maybe conservatives are less motivated to view the disease as threatening because that serves their political ends. So that's what we ran our studies originally to try to find out. It's interesting because I had a guy on, so I had two prominent kind of conservatives on recently, um, David French and Noah Rothman. And David French is a guy who is a social libertarian. He's, both these guys are on Bill Maher, meet the press regularly. And uh, French is kind of like, you've got to control the virus. I was I was pretty surprised. I thought he was going to kind of imagine the kind of, kind of reaction against these stay-at-home measures. And Noah Rothman... I asked him, like, do you worry about conservatism? Because the government, like, right now, people seem to want government. And he says, well, no, we have all these federated libertarian responses. And th- but it is interesting, right? Because people, we are so tribal and so political that people, the first kind of lens you go to is whose team does it help? Mm-hmm. Which is probably not going to help us get out of this, right? <laughs> no, no, not at all. <laughs> yeah. So... I what well, look what we found surprised me to be honest with you I wasn't I was actually expecting both of those things to matter but I thought experiences and impacts of the disease would be the primary reason perhaps that liberals and conservative view this pandemic differently but it wasn't that at all the the different experiences that the groups were having weren't driving the effects in our very much in our data we we found was far more evidence that the desired political outcomes were the reason conservatives view the disease as less threatening than liberals and going to your point about big government, conservative in our in our data. Now I, I get there's a lot of variability on this, but in our data, conservatives don't they don't want big government. They perceive that the disease is going to institute more big government, and therefore they want to justify the disease as not being threatening to serve that political end. That's one way to look at it. And on the other hand, and I've cuts both ways, liberals want more big government, and so they're more likely to view something that would justify it as valid. That though that was the better explanation, explanatory framework in our data. Yeah, it's interesting because this validates something that I found true over the past, like in the era of Trump, like when Trump gets in to office and the Russia scandal stuff hits, Democrats used to have a more favorable view of Russia mm-hmm. than Republicans yeah. or, or less. And then it switches, like Republicans mm-hmm. have a better view just like the NFL, like, you know, um, Democrats used to have a, a less favorable view of the NFL 
than Republicans. And then the con Kirkpatrick and the, the the protests, and then all of a sudden you have this. Thing. So it's just it seems like we're getting into this like reptilian brain thing where we're losing all of our evolutionary frontal lobe capacities and we're just going back to the the dinosaur brain we're like good bad good bad like i mean is that is this the danger of the tribalism that we can't actually think analytically anymore uh yeah i do think it's a danger of it um i would also say part of it is the way we frame it and I, I don't want to contribute to that framing, so I'm going to make a point about absolute values here in a second. So part of it is we're talking today about this divide between liberals and conservatives on their views of COVID, right? That's what the blog piece was about. That's what I said. I wouldn't even written the, police, the piece if there wasn't a divide. Yet it's also worth noting, kind of to your point earlier about your friend, your, you know, the, or the, the, the folks you had on, the conservative um, guests you had on. Actually, so, so what does that mean? Does that mean that conservatives are like, you know, we don't care about this disease at all. We're not worried about it. And liberals are terrified. No, actually, if you look at the absolute values, both of those groups score above the midpoint in, in, their, in their concern over the disease. So they both think it's threatening. Liberals just think it's relatively more threatening than conservatives. Well, I think my point is part of it is in the narrative that we're casting. We're all depressed and upset because we seem like we disagree a lot, but I'm not totally sure we actually disagree some of the time as much as it, as it seems. Yes, there are real disagreements, but I'm not sure they're quite as big. And I worry about the amplification of news, Fox News and MSNBC and so forth, maybe exaggerating the differences of the common person. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with that because I think the problem is you have MSNBC saying that anybody that wants to open up the economy hates human life. Mm-hmm. And you have Fox saying anybody that doesn't want to open the economy doesn't love the country or the culture. And, and, and these are things, and we are in a place right where we are in a tenuous liminal moment. We're like, oh my gosh, we do not, we have no idea what's going on. And, and the known unknowns are so broad mm-hmm. and we're going to have to figure out a way in this country to like, to have a, a civil compact together and say, I, I don't know, like, how do we deal with the vulnerable? How do we get back to work? And how, I mean, I read this article the other day where there are 323 people tested yesterday or the day before in a Missouri meat plant, asymptomatic cases, positives. And we don't even know if the tests are, the things we don't know. So like, I, I just mm-hmm. feel like we're in a place where, where um, our social trust deficit is going to kill us. Uh, moving forward, right? I mean, we have to figure out a way to trust each other and say, hey, this is wh- how we're going to move forward together. And it seems like we are so far from that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does seem like we're far from that. Pew data suggests we're probably as we feel as divided as we felt in a long, long time, survey data, polling data, and so forth. Look, a part, to me, part of it is I don't know when we became so afraid of disagreement. I don't know when it became a bad thing to disagree. I our system of government has always been based on dialecticism, two, two opposing sides. We put two attorneys in a courtroom. We tell one of them to argue vigorously for one side and one to argue vigorously for the other side. And we hope the truth comes out in the middle. We have a system designed around checks and balances where each side kind of argues their, their point of view. And we've long had deep ideological differences in the country. We just It just feels different right now to a lot of people. And the Pew data back that up, that it feels different. We feel much more divided, but I don't know why it bothers us so much. I think disagreements personally have a lot of positive value. They help reduce collective biases. They help us figure out what's actually going on. 
you're right. We don't know. We don't know about this disease. The information is actually hard to come by, and and we don't. I, it's hard. It's hard to to parse. We have so little information. And I think, in some sense, the two sides of the debate can help balance each other, so that we can figure out better what's going on. The two, you know, sides who have their own own interests, perhaps. It's not always a bad thing. It's just that we feel so depressed about it. I, I once said to my class that I just I was playing devil's advocate in my political psychology seminar, and I once said, Fox News is the best thing that ever happened to news media in this country, true or false. And then I went on to make an argument that I thought it was true. Okay. I said, look, Fox News, and the reason it's true is because of dialecticism. I thought the media had become a little bit of sort of comfortably liberal, and Fox News helped shake them out of that. I don't trust Fox News as much as I would trust a, a compass that only points to Louisiana. But I also have some misgivings about MSNBC. And in a sense, Fox News might help balance some of the media on the other side. Now, I, I sort of regret saying that in retrospect. I don't really feel that way today, frankly, about it, given all the partisanship and how divided we are. But I think the spirit of argument and disagreement is fine. And somewhere along the way, we just lost that. We got afraid of it. Yeah, you know, and you know what John Stewart says? You know, Fox News, they do good television. Like, I'm a liberal kind of guy, generally, you know, it, 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 and by orientation, but I love the television. It's just, it's great theater. I mean, it, it, they do good television. And he, you know, he also said, like, that the media bias is not political, it's to laziness and sensationalism. Hmm. And if, if if Fox is doing lazy sensationalism on the one level, maybe it'll balance out because it is, it is like, I mean, I do think like it's interesting in a time where like I look at like Trump says this disinfectant comment, right? Which is problematic and awful and weird, mm-hmm. but like Fox ignores it or once in a while runs it and MSNBC runs it on a loop constantly. Everyone knows Trump is says stupid things it's baked into the cake right like I mean, he's gonna get on and say stupid things how is this like ignoring it is not helpful nor is running on a loop like it's part of the public record but basically we need a lot of facts right now we need as much data in the public record as we can because again we're gonna have to come to this point where like i saw this study today this projection today that like if the whole country opened up we're looking at three hundred and fifty thousand deaths in june that's a lot of death and yet and again, but what's our uh, what's the alternative? Like we we never open up and the culture collapses. And so we're going to have to get together as a country and say, well, in the midst of ambiguity and risk and uncertainty and liminality, we're going to have to just sit and, and make a decision together. And we're going to have to have a feeling that you're in it in Montana and people in Manhattan and people in Idaho and people in Oregon and all, everybody's like, we're, we're one America, like 9-11. And I feel like, 9-11 brought us together, uh, and that's one day, one day of corona deaths. <laughs> it's 9-11, mm-hmm. right? One day. And we are we are basically like fragmenting. Like we're getting 9-11 every day, and it's not drawing us together, it's pushing us apart, right? I mean, how do we how do we combat that? I that is a very good question. You know, our own data suggests something we call the agreement paradox, which is that one of the reasons I think we are here is because a natural response to disagreement, like we all feel like, oh my gosh, it's bad that we disagree. So well, what do we do? We create norms that try to force agreement on issues that we think we ought to agree on. So for example, we create political correctness norms that say we all should talk positively about groups in such and such a way. Now I want to be clear, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a liberal independent. I'm very much in favor of political correctness norms that govern positive communication. 
But one of the side effects of that kind of norm is that people, it, it creates short-term superficial agreement because no one wants to look like a total jerk by going against the norm. So there's these pressures for agreement that have this positive initial impact, but behind the scenes, they make people mad because nobody likes to be told what to do. And they, they basically cut off the very flower that they're trying to grow in the long term. So they work in short-term spurts, but in the long term, and I think part of what's happened with us is we had these sort of bludgeoning norms that had a good purpose, in my opinion, many of them, right? that were trying to accomplish positive things. Let's get everyone to agree on climate change. So we're going to put this forward. You know, why, why? So we have data that suggests about climate change. Why do people don't, Americans, a lot of Americans don't trust the consensus. Part of the reason is because they feel like it was artificially created by norms that pressures for agreement. So we have all of these issues on which we're divided. And part of the reason our data suggests is that because we've had these longstanding pressures for agreement and people just got tired of it. And I think that on both sides, liberals and conservatives. And I, and I think Donald Trump was partially the result of that and not the cause of it. In other words, he was the cra- there was a crack in this glass of this artificial consensus, if you will, and he was just the pressure that broke it. He was the outcome of it. You know, in our data, we, we, and during the 2016 run-up, we, we collected a little study where we, we prime political correctness norms. So we just put them in people's heads in one condition. We didn't put them in people's heads in another. And then we asked who they're going to vote for. Um, Clinton or Trump. You'd think priming political correctness norms is a liberal thing, so it'd make people vote. But no, it actually made people more likely to vote for Trump. Okay, there was actually two. Uh, if you if you if you if in the in the normal condition we had a left leaning sample, so in the normal condition there was a big gap between in favor of Clinton, and then when you prime political correctness norm, that gap went away. People who would otherwise have voted for Clinton said they were going to vote for Trump. Why? Well, it's because they don't. People don't like being told what to do, and they felt like political correctness norms were constraining. So these are great norms, but I think part of it has to do with our fear of disagreement has created this environment where we don't know what the heck to do. Nobody knows what to say, how to communicate across divides. We just sit and shout at each other, even when, like with COVID, we're probably not that far apart. The two sides. Yeah, and how do you build that consensus? I mean, how do you? I mean. How do you kind of, are there things like socially we can do or, you know, I mean, I'm, you're in a classroom. So, I mean, how do you, how do you work this? How do we build? I mean, this seems like that, I mean, all the demographic stuff says, right? Like that we're more divided on tribal political lines than on racial lines, which is great for race relations, I guess, uh, or, or, or bad for tribe. I mean, I don't know how to... Like, how do we even deal with that? Well, there's no magic bullet. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't know exactly if we're going to make it along those lines, but I think it kind of starts with me and you. It starts with every person. I, I, I tell you this, I feel a lot more worried about the fate of the country when I read Twitter than when I talk to my conservative and liberal friends or, or colleagues. You know, I think that it, it's, it scares me to read Twitter. What, what time of day do you read Twitter? I don't read Twitter hardly ever. I only look at it for research. We do research on it. We code people's tweets for complexity. Yeah. Yes, there is there is variability. Okay. So when I look at it, it frightens me. Maybe I, you're right. Maybe it's just a bad sample. I don't know. Um, I realize there's a lot of positive things about Twitter. I get that. Although research in my field, I went to a seminar which suggest the, the people tried to say, why do people tweet? That was actually the title of the seminar at, at SPSP, our main conference in social. And the answer they gave was 80% of tweets were, were due to narcissism. That's just the answer they gave. I mean, I'm not saying it was right, but they systematically tried to rule out other alternatives. So I don't know. Okay. Um, 
maybe I'm wrong about Twitter, but to, to your point, back to your, your very, very good question, which I have currently sidestepped, I, I would say this. It starts with individuals, in a sense, using common standards to reach out across party lines. It starts with, let's hold people, I mean, I'm a, I'm a liberal. Let's hold people on the liberal side to the same standards that we held people on the conservative side. L- let's actually use the same standard of judgment for people in our house as we use in people in others in other houses. Yeah, yeah. Let's. So, what does that look like? So, when is the last time you did that? Like, when is the last time you did that with someone? When is the last time I did that with someone where I yeah, reached when you out? Were, you, you, were, no, when you were like in the liberal standard, you you called out someone. And you were like, hey, like. This is not okay. Well, I think that's complicated in my private life. I prob- I'm, I'm really an irritating person who does that kind of thing a lot. <laughs> so I probably do it privately quite a bit. Um, that, would, that would be yesterday, most likely. Um, I've, I, I feel like we're being, a, this is just my own opinion, like liberals were being a bit hypocritical about Joe Biden and Tara Reid not applying the same standard that we would apply to conservatives, for example. So, yeah, I mean, this is, and this is a glaring, right. uh, Mm -hmm. Blind spot. I mean, it, it, it is, I mean, you believe every woman with a Kavanaugh thing. It's a, it's a problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so I, I, I think it's important that we do by the by, and by the way, I think that applies on both sides. It takes two to tango conservatives and liberals both need to do this kind of thing. Look, I'd also say this. There's research, interesting research that this kind of goes to my point about COVID. There's an interesting line of research coming out that I don't know that it's been published yet, but I saw it at SPSP. And there, there's a lot of work that's emerging that if you just prime people with things that you know they're likely to agree on, and they don't have to be political things, like, you know, everybody likes a cookie dough ice cream pretty much. So let, let's let's get them talking about things they actually agree on. It humanizes the other person in some way. So, I mean, you can't just save the world through cookie dough ice cream or maybe taking away Donald Trump's Twitter account would be another idea. But so you, you can't, since everyone, most people on both sides seems to think that, you know, we wish he would stop tweeting. Let's unite the country around that. Okay. Just stop, take, stop the president from tweeting for crying out loud. So, so I, I think, you know, we, we, we can do that, but look for fundamental change. We need people at a grassroots level to start reaching out. We need we need conservative Christians to argue for the rights of gay and lesbians. We need gay and lesbian people to argue for the rights of, of straight people. We need it on both sides for people to start applying a common standard in some way. That's point one. And point two is, I do think it's fine that we disagree. We need Liberace for R. Kelly. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I, look, I think it's fine that we, so, so I, I personally feel like we have to get through our fear of disagreement and realize that it's actually okay. It's fine. Now, I'm a hypocrite about that, okay? Because if you said to me, well, fine, I disagree. I think the KKK is great. I'd be like, no, 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 no. That's that's too far. <laughs> no, no, it's interesting. I, I was part of a church where like, it was a lot of like recovering evangelicals. And, it, it, and, the, and the kind of thing they grew up in was, if you love me, you agree with me, right? And, th- and then this church's ethos became... We can love each other and disagree, and that's okay. And I said, what if our ethos was we can love each other and disagree and talk about it, and it all be okay? Like, and we can all be family in it. I mean, that, and I think that's kind of like, but, but now, is, is that seem like a fool's errand now? I mean, it, it, I mean, you're, you're in part of it, you know, you're, you're in the, um, 
heterodox kind of thing with hate and all these guys like that are, but I mean that, it, do you feel so lonely and isolated, like advocating that perspective? Cause that's not a big tribe. Yeah. Well, I, I'm a liberal religious person, so that's a very small demographic. Um, sometimes I do feel isolated, but look, what religion um, do you practice? Christianity. I, I, I actually, you're, your church that you just described sounded a lot like mine. We, we just think agree- disagreement is, is okay. You know, in, in principle, we talk about it and try to work through it has been my mostly extremely positive experience in my, in my church here in Missoula. So, um, so yeah, do, do I, do I feel like it's a fool's errand? I don't know. You know, when, when I listened to your speaker last week, um, Ed, whose name I've forgotten last name, sorry. Ed Watts. Ed Watts, thank you. Ed Watts, who was great, terrific, absolutely. Everybody should go listen to that. And he was describing the different outcomes of the Roman pandemics and how one seemed to collapse societal structure and the other one seemed to reinforce it. And which one are we? And I don't know. It feels like to me that we're maybe not going so well, you know, like maybe we're we're headed down not so good of a road that we're so divided that it's it's hard to conceive of us getting back together. But I don't want to just concede that. And to your original question, which I do remember, I, I don't feel like it's hopeless, N- not in the circles that I travel in. It, it actually feels like people can come together and people, there are liberals and conservatives politically in my church and we get along fine. So we disagree and we talk about it and that's okay. You know, there are people in my church who believe in a seven day creation and there are people who believe in evolution and that's that's fine. We talk about it. We disagree. We we move on. It's kind of a part of the ethos of my church. Now, that doesn't mean we disagree on everything. We obviously all have a certain set of religious convictions. But even if you disagree on those, you're not like immediately kicked out of the church. So so I do think there's a model that we can follow to to move forward. And I don't think it's entirely hopeless. I just think it has to start at some grassroots level. And there's groups like Braver Angels who are trying to bring, and heterodoxy, trying to bring people together across the political divide. And, and, and I applaud those, those efforts. And, I, and part of it just has to do with basic human respect. You know, you can disagree with someone. But look, you said something earlier that I agree with. L- love to me, we have this idea that love is agreement, right? You said, well, and I can, I can see that. Sometimes the church is horrible at this. Love, you have to agree in order to be loved. Actually, clearly the opposite is true. It's easy to to like someone and love someone when you when you agree with them. They they validate your ego. Love actually to me starts it starts where agreement ends. It starts with disagreement. That's when you that's when we should kick in, you know, love your neighbor, <laughs> love your enemy. Yeah, and love opens up an understand a possibility for understanding in the way that like um, if you're obsessed with the truth or knowledge, right? Like uh, love throwing itself into the world can see the facts, right? Like, but can see them in a way that can connect the facts and in, in the way that naked truth or knowledge just does not. Right. And, and without love, I think of this more. great, I, I, I think of this great line from um, the two popes movie on Netflix where, um, you know, it, there's this scene where um, Francis is hearing Benedict's confession and he says, he quotes Benedict back to himself as he's hearing his confession. He says, um, truth is essential, but without love, it's unbearable. <laughs> and it's a great, that line. is the reality, right? Um, yeah. So true. So look, I, thanks for coming on the podcast and thanks for your work and um, keep doing it. And we'll have you back regularly. I hope. Sounds great. I had a great time. Delighted to, to, uh, to talk with you and I appreciate it. Thank you so much for coming on. All right, thanks. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. If you like what you've heard here, please do a few things for me. Go share about this episode in iTunes. Write a review. Give it a rating. Share the love and goodness. Or go on social media. Share a link to the episode on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. Please pass along the love and goodness if you've experienced it here. Thanks again. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Give and Take. And until next time, friends, fare thee well.